Hi, I'm Dan Lukasik. I'm the creator of the website Lawyers with Depression. Today's guest is Shalini George, who is a professor at uh, Suffolk University Law School. Professor George teaches there, and her scholarship is focused on law student and lawyer well-being, mindfulness, and the cognitive science of learning. She is the author of the recently released The Law Student's Guide to Doing Well and Being Well, the co-author of Mindful Lawyering, The Key to Creative Problem Solving, and has written law review articles on distraction and the cognitive science of learning and why law students need mindfulness training. Professor George is highly involved in the national legal writing community, having served on the board of the Association of Legal Writing Directors, the Executive Committee of the AALS Section on Legal Writing, Research and Reasoning, and has co-chaired the Diversity and Scholarship Committees of the Legal Writing Institute. Professor George was recently appointed to the Institute for Wellbeing in Law's Research and Scholarship Committee and is a member of the AALS Balance Section. So welcome to the show, Professor. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, let's begin our, 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 our talk uh, right from where things stand now. Uh, and you're a professor, a law professor at Suffolk. How, how has the law school experience changed or remained the same for law students over the past 10 years or so? relating to mental health and well-being? I think that it has changed. Um, I would say over the last 10 to 15 years, I've seen a change. Partly the change, I, I believe, is that students are coming to law school now feeling more comfortable with the fact that they um, have learning disabilities or have been seeing a therapist uh, through their adolescence or college years. And they come to law school and they come to an environment that has not been terribly welcoming or understanding of those issues until recently. So I actually think students have been trying to tell us for a little while that in law school and in the practice of law, we need to be a little bit more aware of these changes that they're going through as they're growing up, um, facing uh, a world and an environment where there's information just flooded at them and, you know, from 9-11 20 years ago to the pandemic last year uh, and all kinds of things in between, I think students have, um, they, they are used to having had mental health counseling or people looking out for them in ways that I think law schools and law firms and in the practice of law we haven't been doing. When you talk about coming into law school, having been through such things as mental health counseling, are we talking just about stress issues or can it be something more serious than that prior to entering law school? I think it runs the gamut, to be honest. Um, I think there there is a lot of anxiety. Um, I've had a lot of my students tell me that they have been treated or are being treated for anxiety disorders. Um, but I've also had students who have had serious depression um, and, and, and everything in between. And you mentioned earlier, I thought that was, it was interesting. Uh, until recently, law school has not been very welcoming uh, to those people coming into the school. Why is that? Can you give us a little historical context? I suspect that, you know, we, if we go back in time, Dan, to when you were 
I might have been in law school. Um, we didn't talk about these things. You know, as a society, we didn't talk about them very much. Certainly in the practice of law, we didn't talk about them. And I do not remember any law school professor ever really asking me, hey, how are you doing? Um, so I think there a lot of a lot of those people um, are still teaching in law school, right? We're, we're, we've been in that in that same environment, you know, people have been teaching for 20, 30, 40 years. And so so some of it is kind of like, well, I got through it, you know, in the way that it was then. So we have an expectation that students should be able to get through it now, maybe without having to think about some of these things. But times change, people change, society changes, the way we cope with things um, changes. So I think, unfortunately, law schools, law firms, the practice of law, we can be a little bit behind the times sometimes. We're not, not exactly um, ahead of the curve when it comes to some of these things. I think you raise an important point, Professor. There, it seems to me, as I go out and lecture around the country uh, at law firms and uh, law school CLE events, a generational divide of a sort of a sort at uh, law schools. Uh, you know more, a lot more about that than I do, but I notice it in the context of uh, firms, large firms, where mid-level to senior-level leadership is uh, the forty and over crowd uh, who did not go into law with any kind of expectation that mental health or well-being would be a priority. And we have a younger group coming in, as you, you were discussing, who do have that expectation, who do have a, a, a sense that this matters to them, their mental health and well-being. And you have kind of, in some regards, a collision uh, between those two groups. And I think we're you know, in some sense, don't you think we're kind of like at a point uh, where we're trying to, to negotiate that somehow? Absolutely. Um, and I've been very involved with that at Suffolk in, um, you know, there are various organizations that are trying to tell law schools that we need to be concerned with these things. So, you know, we have our students on the one hand and we can say anecdotally that we have seen certain characteristics in them or that they've told us that they have certain needs from the top down, you know, like the ABA is interested and has been interested in the issue now. I think a lot of states, I know you're involved in New York, I know here in Massachusetts, the Supreme Judicial Court has um, created a whole committee and organization centered around issues of well-being. So it's almost like law schools are in between there. Um, and we're still, the law schools, you know, are being told you should be concerned about this. This is something that we want you to be thinking about. You know, the ABA has said very specifically, we want you to do programming. We want you to, we want programming for first year students. We want programming throughout the law school. Um, but schools have to figure out how to do that. And that's where I think we are right now, where there may, now there is starting to be a recognition that, um, various organizations are telling us we need this kind of programming. Maybe schools are starting to realize that they need this kind of programming, but we're not exactly sure where, what is the programming and how do we provide this information um, to students. So at Suffolk, we adopted as one of our learning outcomes a number of years ago, I was chair of the committee that worked on this. Um, we adopted a um, we didn't use the term well-being. This was maybe before well-being was being used as much as it was, but we did adopt um, an outcome that said that we, we thought that students throughout the course of their law school career should come to understand what it means um, to care for oneself and for self-reflection um, and to be able to handle the challenges um, of the practice of law. So 
at Suffolk, what we did is we, you know, I, I sort of put together a proposal um, along with um, some other very interested and talented people at Suffolk to say if the ABA says we should do this, our Supreme Judicial Court is telling us we should offer this programming, we are representing to our students that we want them to have these particular capabilities when they graduate, we actually need to back this up with substantive real programming. And that's where um, that's where my book comes into play. And that's mm -hmm. where some of the some of the things that I'm working on at Suffolk come into play that I'm I, I'm happy to say are a step in that direction. Let's stop there. Let's talk about the book for a second. Uh, sure. I'm sure it took time. I, I, I'm a writer, you're a writer, and this is uh, not an easy thing to do to, to write a book and research a book. Uh, when did you start it and why did you begin writing it? Well, it might surprise you to know I, I wrote it rather quickly, um, <laughs> but it is a little bit, it's a little bit of, you know, it's, a, it's always a path, right? Writing is not I think a straight, it's not, not usually a straight path. Um, so my journey towards this book is really something that's, that's gone on for the last 10 years or so. Um, I started, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, I started 10, 10, 12 years ago, being interested in the, a concept that I saw playing out in my classroom, which was the laptops and the phones. And what I sensed was a level of distraction that um, was not there when I was in law school, right? If we wanted to be distracted when we were in law school, we did crossword puzzles or we passed notes. But now students have literally the world at their fingertips um, through their phones and through their laptops. And they're used to engaging with the world all the time. They're texting, they're chatting, they're emailing, they're you know checking sports scores. Like you can literally do everything um, through that little device that we all have in our hands all the time. So I, I sensed a change in students and I wanted to research if there really was a pedagogical reason that I should be thinking about this and whether there was an effect on learning. So some of the work I did earlier was just to help me understand how our brains process and learn information and to determine that there really was a detrimental effect on that process through distraction. And once I identified that distraction was a problem, mindfulness sort of became a natural um, outshoot of that because the antidote to being distracted, of course, is to, is to focus on one thing at a time. Mm. And I you know, became interested in mindfulness personally, and I began trying to figure out how I could teach some mindful practices in the classroom. And then as mindfulness caught on and everybody's sort of talking about it, and to me, some it almost feels like mic mindfulness um, sometimes, <laughs> right? Um, you know, mindful eating, mindful walking, mindful running, mindful everything. I wanted to then try to think even beyond that. And when I really dug into the concept of um, this idea that as lawyers, we are knowledge workers, basically. Um, what, what we are offering to our clients is this ability to think and argue and persuade and problem solve. And it requires deep focus. It requires using our prefrontal cortex where all of this kind of executive, mm -hmm. executive functioning happens. And I, I realized, I knew this inherently, but I realized through the science then that all of the other things that help make us well in general are also really good for our brains. So 
I knew instinctively that it was, I, I thought better on a day or I wrote better on a day that I'd gone for a run or a walk or been to the gym. I didn't understand the scientific basis for that. Or I knew that if I had had, um, if I ate a donut, for example, I was going to get really just tired in the afternoon and not feel like I could focus on the task at hand. Or if I wasn't sleeping well, you know, consistently, my work product was declining. I knew all of those things just because I could, could instinctively feel them. But what I did with the book and what I wanted to, to help students realize is that those things that we sometimes think of as indulgent or we think of self-care as not important, not, you know, I, I've got to set all that aside because I have to study or I've got to, I, I can't possibly go to the gym because I've got this big brief I have to work on. I want us to step back from that and say, my brief is going to be better if I do do that. You know, my work product is going to improve if I plan out my exercise and my meals and my time with friends and family and the, you know, we kind of remember who we are um, at our core before we went to law school, um, reconnecting with all of those things. That, that was really my impetus um, for writing the book. And um, it's an excellent book. I, I read it. I had the pleasure of reading it the other day. And there's so many wonderful points that you make in the book. Uh, and you're a wonderful writer. Uh, trying to describe and explain these complicated, some of them complicated principles and apply them to the, where the rubber meets the road life of law students and lawyers. One of the things that I was really struck by, uh, Professor, is this idea, you said something to the effect that even the best of minds have a limited capacity to concentrate. And I think you said, if I'm correct, something like four hours of productive concentration a day. Can you talk? I thought I just thought that was so interesting. Can you elaborate? Sure. Yeah, sure. And I and I want to I want to just be clear for everybody. It's not that we can only work four hours a day. It's that we have at maximum about four hours of that kind of true focus, productive. You know that that moment where the, a concept clicks, or you're able to write a sentence that you've been struggling with, or you're able to unravel a legal research issue that you just hadn't been able to unravel. You know that the kind of thing that people call flow, a state of flow, or kind of being in the zone, whatever you want to call that. But but those moments of clarity where you are just really engaged in a task um, to your fullest. At max, we have about four hours of that in a day, and probably really only the best of us have four hours of that. Oh, I don't think we realize how much of our time gets spent in, I'm just going to check this email. I'm just going to respond to this email. I'm just going to, I'm going to grab a cup of coffee. I'm going to talk to somebody. I'm going to check a sports score. I'm going to order some lunch. You know, every one of those little things that we indulge they break our concentration and we leak a little mental efficiency each time we shift our focus like that. And so, yep. One um, of the things I thought that was interesting, and I, I think you, before I interrupted you, I think you're going to make a uh, talk about this. You talked about this. Uh, most of us have, you know, known or used the expression multitasking, mm -hmm. but I think you use and distinguish this other concept task shifting. Am I correct? Yeah. Task switching is what I call switching. it, but task, task shifting works just as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, we think we're multitasking. We're, we are rarely multitasking. Uh, I can chew gum and watch TV at the same time. Um, I was having a funny conversation with somebody the other day who told me that he was um, listening to a podcast while he was on an elliptical and he wondered if that was bad. I said, you can do that, right? You're using different, you're using your body and you're using your brain. But, you know, two things that don't require the same kind of focus, we can do some of those. Um, you know, you can fold laundry while you're watching TV. You can, those are, those are things that can be multitasked. But going from cognitive focus to cognitive focus on something else, so reading deeply a case for class, for example, but then also thinking about writing a memo for a different class, and then responding to an email, and then, you know, chatting with somebody next to you, every time you break from that initial task, you're not, you're not multitasking, right? You're switching your task. And each time you switch tasks, you, there's something called attention residue. So your attention lingers at where, where you were before. And then sometimes it even moves on to, oh, I know I have this other big assignment I have to do. And your brain is thinking about that while you think you're doing something else. So, you know, part of the mind, the, the, the place where mindfulness comes in is just training our brains again, that it we can do in, we can do one thing at a time. And sometimes when we do just do one thing, we do that one thing so much better than trying to do three or four things and making a couple of errors here and a couple of errors there because our focus isn't 100% on any of those things. Yeah, bringing this around to mindfulness, it's, you, you've had your own personal experiences with mindfulness, and I have also on and off over the last 30 years with uh, insight meditation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was, you know, and I, I related to you uh, before we began that I was diagnosed with major depression when I was 40, about 20, 20 years ago. And I must say that over that time, the last 20 years, mindfulness has been an important part of my recovery from depression and my staying well. And there was a great book I read on this topic called The Mindful Way Through Depression. Mm -hmm. it's just, a, just a wonderful book. Mm -hmm. And I think it relates to what we're talking about here uh, because um, one of the things that the authors, um, neuroscientists talked about and why mindfulness can uh, be a good way to address depression, it breaks up that ruminative, fragmented, uh, recycling of negative thoughts, you know, it affects different parts of the brain. It, it, it strengthens the part of the brain that makes us healthy, mentally healthy, right. and weakens the part that's involved in depression. You talk a lot in your book about this, the parts of the brain implicated in uh, mm -hmm. mindfulness and how it affects law student mental health and well-being. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the part of our brains that we need to produce, you know, quality uh, uh, analysis and writing and, you know, the kinds of things that lawyers do, a lot of that happens in our prefrontal cortex. So in the front of our brain um, and mindfulness has been shown scientifically, you know, when, when um, scientists look or doctors look at functional MRIs where they can actually see the blood flowing in the brain as we engage in different tasks, 
it's been shown to increase the, you know, the parts of our brain. Mindfulness increases, literally increases um, blood flow to those parts of our brain and the functioning of those parts of our brain. Distraction ignites a different part of the brain. And that's part of, that's part of the problem. Um, and too much distraction is, has been shown to grow parts of the brain that, that are not helpful to deep focus. So um, I, I absolutely agree with you. Mindfulness, I think, has been shown to be very helpful um, with depression for that reason. Ruminating is, is going to the past, right, and is rethinking things. And the, the message of mindfulness is, is be here right now. Not don't be in tomorrow and how am I going to get through tomorrow and don't be in yesterday um, ruminating, ruminating over what happened or what, what, you know, what you wish you had done. That's really important. I think another way that mindfulness can really help us is that most of us, we're on the go, right, from the minute we get up in the morning, literally sometimes until we go to bed. And I think sometimes we don't realize you don't even realize what's bothering you or that there is something that that is disturbing you until you sit with your thoughts, until you genuinely sit in silence with your thoughts. And it takes time. It doesn't happen right away. When we when we first try five minutes or 10 minutes of mindfulness, I think a lot of us spend most of the time swatting thoughts away. And it takes it takes a, a moment, you know, a few more moments of stillness before then you realize I'm actually thinking about how it's my father's birthday. I didn't realize I was thinking about my father uh, passed a number of years ago. You know, I'm not consciously realizing that 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 thought is there until I put until I stop doing all of those other things, and I'm in the moment with myself. And so I think mindfulness sometimes can just help us even realize that our brain's processing all these things sometimes that are taking away our ability to be in the moment where we are. Um, and that I'm not, you know, that's a little bit different than depression, but I think it, it can help us figure out sometimes if we're heading in a path that is going to be problematic, maybe before we get there, if we can learn to be a little bit a little bit more in tune really with um, our internal weather. I, I think, uh, I think that's, those points are right on. And one of the things, uh, you know, I brought up uh, mental health in the sense of uh, these more serious issues like anxiety, depression, but we also can, can talk about well-being. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it, it's just not that we want to be free of a, from a life of anxiety or depression, which are uh, law students and lawyers have been shown to, to struggle with these things at a very, very high rates. But we also want to be productive, have a satisfying career, enjoy law school, uh, things of this sort. So when we talk about being in the moment, uh, there's a connection between that, I would think, and enjoying moments and enjoying life. It, it, would that be right. fair to say? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely fair to say. And, you know, people talk about wellness, and I like to make this, this point um, wellness, I think, implies only the absence of sickness, right? So if you're not sick, then you're well. You don't have a fever. You must be well. What we're trying to talk about is, is thriving, right? Well-being, I think, encompasses so much more than, than wellness because, there, first of all, there's so many different aspects that, that go into 
being a well person overall. And that's a process. It's not just some, you don't just achieve well-being. It's a continuous process. So I think that's a very fair thing to say that we are working towards a place where law students and lawyers could have an understanding, first of all, that they should care about their well-being, that that's a legitimate concern, that it's a legitimate thing for them to care about and for their employers to care about and for people to put emphasis on. Um, it doesn't have to be a hidden thing that, you know, you're worried about yourself or you wish you had more time to do certain things. I think part of what we're seeing happen through conversations like what you and I are having right now is that we, we bring it all out in the open. We talk, you know, we are giving it importance. We're shining a light on all of these things that I think people probably felt they had to figure out alone. And that of course, is not a good recipe for good mental health anyway. Let's talk about, shift gears a little bit here and talk about the class you actually teach at Suffolk. First of all, what's the name of the class and how do you use the book uh, in the class? So we are, we are uh, piloting a class this year um, and the class is called Preparing for Professional Success. Um, so that was a tight, we, we sort of looked around the country to see what people were doing. And a lot of people said to us, well, why don't you tell us what you figure out? <laughs> but we looked at, um, you know, a lot of schools are trying to offer some sort of class that addresses well-being, professionalism, professional identity, um, diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, there are all these um, topics that we're talking about and that are really directly relevant to our students, but they don't have a home in the law school environment. Yes, that's very, very true. And I think it's interesting. Uh, I myself am interested in, uh, I mentioned to you, in, and I have proposed a, a, a course in uh, mental health and well-being in the legal profession to the University of Buffalo, our dean there. And um, I, I did a search, a national search, to see how many law schools actually have actually mm -hmm. proceeded forward and started teaching these kinds of classes. And I really couldn't find many. Uh, are you aware of, of many? Is this, a, is this changing or? It's changing. It's mm -hmm. changing. Um, but just, it, it, you know, we're just starting to change. So I, I did, um, I have learned of maybe 10 or 12 schools that have some sort, you know, everybody calls it something different. The place that seems to connect, I think, between law school's concern that this, that a course like this seem, um, you know, weighty enough mm -hmm. and where we think we need to be seems to be around the idea of professional identity formation. Um, there are some schools that have created positions like the director of professional identity formation. Um, you know, some schools do have a well-being position, but I think a lot of schools are finding um, professionalism and professional identity is sort of a bigger umbrella under which we can put well-being mm -hmm. that seems to be a little bit more palatable, I think, to some I think faculties. That, I think that's a great point, and I see the corollary in law firms around mm -hmm. this issue of competency and ethical obligations as right. they, you know, and the, the interconnection nexus between mental health and well-being and the ability to be a competent ethical lawyer. And I, right. I, I think that's 
not inaccurate. Uh, I think that's and th that's another way of addressing this. So, with respect to your your course, your mm -hmm. your pilot course, um, how often do you meet? Uh, is it a seminar? Uh, just to give us a sense of what if we were in your classroom uh, sure. today, what would it look like? Sure, sure. I'm happy to talk about it because it's very exciting. Um, so what we've done, there are two of us who are teaching this class. So Professor Lyle Baker, who is also um, really, really interested in this material, and he has his master's in positive psychology. So he brings a lot of knowledge to this. Um, so what we've done is um, we came up with through our, we had we were on a faculty committee last year and, and the, the proposal we came up with in trying to figure out the best way to do this is that it is a one credit pass fail class. Um, it meets, so it's a half a credit each semester. We wanted the course to be a year long because we wanted to have that contact with the students all through the year. Ah. And what, what we ended up doing is we have, we meet with them once every three weeks throughout the semester. Um, the class meetings are an hour and a half. Um, and we are using my textbook this semester, as well as some other materials. So the students have started reading um, in my book, which is really fun. <laughs> yeah, I, it's really, it's very exciting to me. And, and since you've read it, then I can say you, you know that I've written it, uh, I've tried to write it in a very approachable way, in, in language that um, students can can connect with and and that's what they're telling me that it's this is the fun book for them to read yeah well you know it, you know what you've done you've synthesized and and, and uh, taken you know how many law review articles science articles psychology articles and synthesized them in a way that I think uh, has significant practical applications for law students and because of the, I think because of the reality, uh, you know, when law students graduate, they, they go through the bar exam, they're out there working, you know, if they haven't heard these kinds of things in law school, you know, it's, we don't know if they'll ever hear it. And, you know, yeah, well, that's that, how important your course is. Well, that's, that's how I, that is really how I feel about it. Um, and so that, that was, that was a large part of the impetus in, in arguing for the course. So it is a bit of an experiment, right? We don't, we don't exactly know how it's going to go. Um, students seem very excited about it so far. We have, I've ha only had one class with them, but uh, the class was great. <laughs> and I am meeting with them. I met with nine students um, on Wednesday, actually. Oh, so I think, let me give you a few more details. The class is 20 students per section. Um, so I have, um, there were 20 assigned to my section and 20 assigned to Professor Baker's section. And what we did is we, he and I created a little video over the summer um, just talking about what the course, what we envisioned for the course and admissions sent the video out to all of our incoming um, first year students. And we said we would just take the first 40 students who signed up. And within a day or two, you know, we gave them two weeks, but within a day or two, we had our, our students. So I think that's a sign that students, they get it, you know, they're, they're used to hearing about these things. They want to know more about well-being. And, um, and so that's the plan. Five course meetings in the spring, in the fall semester, five course meetings in the spring semester, and everything from, uh, you know, who do you want to be? Who are you? Before you came to law school, what are your goals in law school? How do you study um, some mindful 
uh, practices in the classroom. And then we wanted it to be a year long because we want to be able to process things that happen during the first year that I think students don't have a chance to process otherwise. Like, okay, you're studying for midterms, or you got your first grade, or we're coming up on internships, or you're looking for, for summer jobs. Like, we can bring some of that conversation into the classroom. That just doesn't happen otherwise. The other interesting thing about the way that we've structured it is we picked... Um, Thursday afternoons to have class. Thursday afternoons after two o'clock, first year students don't have class at Suffolk. We have our faculty meetings typically at that time. So we picked a time where none of the first years have class otherwise, so that we're able to get students from all of the sections um, mixed in this course. Um, because I think, you know, the students get, they get so siloed with their first year sections. So it is also an attempt to just kind of give them more points of contact with more students, more professors, um, and for us to be a resource for them. You know, I actually just, just met with a student, um, yesterday who I've sent to the counseling center. Um, you know, so just, you know, someone who felt that they could, they, could come talk to me because of the, the way that we communicate in the class, it, it shows them that we can talk about these things. At the end of the day or at the end of the year after mm -hmm. you finished your pilot, how would you gauge or how, would, how will you know if you've been successful in your pilot? What, what takeaways, what outcomes are you hoping at least this point to achieve? Maybe we'll check back in with you at the end yeah. of the school year to see how things went. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that I'm wrestling with. Um, I'm obviously we're going to ask the students themselves. Um, we have told them that this is this is an experiment. And we're going to ask you along the way, how are we doing? You know, are we are we giving you what you thought you wanted? Are you getting enough? Is there something else that you think would be helpful? And we've told them that we'll ask their opinion. Do you think this should be a required first year class? Um, for all the students mm. and our curriculum committee is supposed to consider this in the spring. Um, so we will be collecting information from our students and passing that on, you know, in a memorandum recommending, assuming that it is successful. I'd like to make, I'd like to assume that uh, because <laughs> I like to approach things with a positive attitude. Um, there um, no doubt will be some bumps in the road as we kind of unravel uh, our grand plans and figure out, I suspect we probably are thinking we can do more than we might be able to do and we'll make some course corrections, but I'm hoping that that we'll get positive feedback from the students that we would be able to tell our faculty about and that we might, it, it might, um, I mean, we're specifically supposed to make a recommendation. So I'm hoping that it might become a required course. Um, there obviously are logistical obstacles to overcome and staffing and resources and those sorts of things. But one nice thing Suffolk did do is they bought a copy of my book for all of the students in this inaugural um, class. Um, you know, they're not, we told them it's, there's no tuition for this class. Um, we'll give you the book and we'll give you some instruction. And so we thought if they're, you know, if they're making the decision to take on an extra credit, we could give them a book um, in return. So I thought that that was, that was a nice thing for Suffolk to do to to put a little bit of, you know, weight behind it. I'm hopeful. I, I think you have a lot of reasons to be hopeful. And uh, I think it's going to be a very impactful course. Um, I will, I think it's interesting. And I just wanted to maybe in some way finish up with this or concluding thoughts, this idea that it'd be a required course. Mm -hmm. I have found over the last 10, 15 years that I've been giving talks, um, 
continuing legal education talks or talks at law schools or law firms, um, conferences, that um, lots of times mental health, well-being, um, meetings, conferences are not required. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I get feedback, well, the people that really should be here, that really need to hear this, aren't Aren't here. here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of value uh, to, uh, to be said about in law school, you know, where it's easier than in the private sector after, you know, after people become lawyers to say this is so important that we as a law school community uh, feel that this is required just and it's just as important as con law or contracts. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. <laughs> That's no surprise. Yes. Um, and just in case anyone from my administration ends up listening to this, <laughs> let me clarify that they bought the book only for this inaugural class. <laughs> yeah. And if it becomes a required course, students will have to purchase the resources um, for the class. So now that I've corrected that, um, Yes, that's the argument that we will be making is that so this for this year, we have students who self-selected um, to take the course. Yes, that's my point. That's my yeah. point. And uh, I, yeah. think that, um, I think that uh, I think that I my prediction is that it's going to be a big success. And I'd like to, to end here with um, leaving you with the opportunity to leave uh, listeners here with a few suggestions, a few law students who may be listening, some law students who may be listening some suggestions maybe from your book and your experiences uh, about how can they manage law school in such a way uh, to promote their well-being and stay mentally healthy. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. Um, I'm a, I was going to say one other thing about your last point about required courses. Um, you know, it's been my experience, and this was the experience at Suffolk, that we had programming. We had something called Wellness Wednesdays, and we mm-hmm. had something called Fit Fridays, Um, And our Dean of Students office has offered wellness programming. And what we find is that students just, they're not using it. Yes. So, you know, they're not, you get a handful of people. And so the course is a step in the right direction, but I I think required courses um, send the message that it is, it is important and the school believes in this. And so I, I hope that that's the direction we're headed in. As far as tips for students, I talk a lot with my students and generally when I go do talks about about not just the book, but just um, about mindfulness, uh, I I like to teach students um, a a sort of a step-by-step process for creating focused conditions for them to do their work. And um, it's pretty simple, but you sit down, um, when you're gonna sit down to, to do either homework, we're talking about law students now, but this applies to lawyers as well. Let's say you have a brief that you're working on or you need to work on a deal. Whatever the work is that you need to do, you sit down with a specific intention of what you're going to accomplish. You don't just say, I'm sitting down to, to do work because the fact of the matter is, if you say, I'm gonna work for four hours, then your work is gonna take four hours if you don't give some conscious thought. So, so setting a goal or an intention, you know, I'm gonna do my, con- I'm gonna read for contracts, think about how these concepts connect to the last class, think about what they mean for the future and incorporate it into my outline, you know, something very, a specific goal. The second thing that I, I recommend to students then is that they create the, 
an appropriate physical space for this work to happen. Mm. And that includes things like not having the phone on your desk, um, turning off automatic alerts on your computer, like all of the bells and whistles that will distract you if they're there to put those away. And, you know, students, oh, my phone's turned off or it's face down or whatever. And I kind of talked to them about the fact that just having the phone on the desk is drawing your attention. Even if it's, even if you're just saying, I'm not going to check my phone, that's still <laughs> yes. a moment where you're not thinking about what you should be doing. So removing technological distractions, but also moving, removing non-technological distractions. So other assignments, shouldn't be sitting in front of you because they're going to they're going to get your um, you're going to glance at them or not having your bills to pay sitting next to you if you're working from home. So creating a good physical space for your work. The third step is is creating good mental space to do the work and that involves some deep breathing. Mm. And I do this with my with my students in class where we do between three and five minutes of some guided breathing where we just kind of all loosen up and relax and breathe and slow down. And in those three to five minutes, I talk, I just talk to them a little bit like about the, the power of slow breathing and what it does for our nervous system and how powerful it is in terms of calming anxiety. And I also tell them in those moments that they may find they're thinking about something. I need to call my mom. I need to pick up milk from the grocery store. Like whatever those thoughts are that fly into your head, I have them jot those down at the end of the breathing so that they know they won't forget that they have to do those things. But then I say, so now you know that you're, those things will be taken care of later. Now we're going to work. And then we work in complete silence in the classroom for 10, 15, 20 mm. minutes, depending on how much time I have. And they have to have everything off of their desk except the assignment that they're working on and a pen or pencil. No computers, no phones, nothing else. Um, and then they work in silence, no talking, no asking questions. I ask them not to leave the room. Like literally I create um, the conditions for them to have only that one thing to work on. And, and they always, anyone who goes through that process will always tell me that they cannot believe how much they accomplish in a short amount of time. And we started today, Dan, by you asking, you asked me at one point about the writing of my book. Um, I wrote it in, in a relatively short amount of time because I was on sabbatical, but I wrote, I spent about three hours a day, um, just every day, three hours a day of really, and, and I, I'm very particular about exercise and about my meals and just kind of planning my time. So, so planning, you know, schedules and planning so that you do not, it's not so easy to just skip going to the gym or, you know, to just grab some junk food because all of that plays into how well you can actually perform um, when you need to. Well, it certainly does. And we tend to think of planning and scheduling sometimes, I think, uh, historically in the context of productivity alone and not in the context of being well and productive, you know, and I think that's the point that comes across in your book. It's about optimizing our brains um, to serve not only our professional goals and purposes, but, but um, ourselves. Yeah, but ourselves, but ourselves. And um, I want to thank you uh, for being on the show uh, today. It was great. I highly recommend listeners buy the book, The Law Student's Guide to Doing Well and Being Well. 
Professor George, uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.